Welcome back to the BodyWise podcast. My name is Barry Murphy and I'm the Research and Policy Officer with BodyWise. In this episode, we're focusing on the connection between sensory processing and eating behaviours in autism. Welcome, Emmy and Jennifer. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is Emmy Nimbley. I am a final year PhD candidate at the University of Edinburgh and my research kind of focuses on the overlap between autism and eating disorders but kind of specifically more anorexia. And my name is Jen O'Connor and I work as um, the Adult Support and Wellbeing Officer at As I Am which is Ireland's national autism charity and essentially kind of we aim to offer different support groups, social groups, everything like that, engaging with the adult autism community in Ireland, you know, across the whole island, really, in terms of reducing social exclusion um, as a whole. So I hope that's a simplified version of what we do. <laughs> Thank you both. And today we're focusing on sensory processing and how that relates to eating behaviours and autism. So perhaps to, to start, uh, Emmy, maybe talking about the differences in, in sensory processing and how they're part of an autism diagnosis and assessment, but where does sensory processing come into the picture and how it affects someone's relationship with food and say their, their health and their quality of life? Yeah, they are. They're a massive part of an autistic person's life. I think they say it's like estimate, like prevalence rates of up to 90%, but it's pretty much a universal um, experience to have differences in sensory processing though interestingly prior to the dsm-5 it wasn't a diagnostic criteria at the forefront of being diagnosed with autism that was pretty much they were really big in the social stuff but now it's generally accepted that sensory processing kind of is related to a broad range of kind of clinical and behavioral presentations of autism including the sense excluding the social stuff sorry so yeah it's very important specific to eating and food I think the main one in terms of impact would be their kind of diet and the food intake so an autistic person who can be overly sensitive to smells or taste or if you think about how food can be presented so this can be to do with textures or foods touching other foods brands coloring of utensils those kind of things so they can be very sensitive to those things and that can lead to autistic people being kind of restrictive with what they eat, kind of not trying new foods, being overly selective in foods. Um, alternatively, you can have people who are underly sensitive, so kind of hyposensitive to these things and, and they actively seek certain sensations like spicy foods and those kind of things. So you can have a little bit of both. Another area of sensory processing that I think is really interesting and this might be a bit selfish or a bit biased because it's what a lot of my research is with is called interoception and this is the interpretation and the kind of identification of internal bodily signals so that can be pain temperature your heartbeat and um, but particularly for our discussions this could be hunger and satiety like feeling full thirst so if your interoceptive ability is a bit off or if it isn't working quite right you aren't able to detect if you're hungry you're not able to detect if you're full so yeah that has definite impacts in terms of eating and food in terms of health and quality of life I think the big one for me I think it would be distress I think 
I speak to a lot of autistic people and it's this kind of full body response to the sensory sensitivities with food. It's not just a like, it's not just a dislike, it is like a full body response and it can cause quite a significant amount of distress. And I'll come back to this a little bit later on because the emotion stuff is quite important in these discussions. But yeah, that's definitely something that's come up in conversations with the community, with other researchers working in the field that link with emotion and stress. So yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest impacts in terms of quality of life. I was thinking of supermarkets have tried to adapt, I suppose, their their sensory environment in a little bit mm-hmm. and maybe th- making the lights less bright and turning off the, the noises to improve, I think, the visits mm-hmm. and access for autistic people. But maybe is, is there something as well, do you think maybe around how food is kind of put out there or is it that... Are people only finding out these reactions when they act, they actually eat it? Could maybe, should there be labeling, I don't know, on foods or? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. And that's not something I've necessarily had to think about in my research in terms of the specific eating behaviors for the artistic individual. But it's really important to have that consideration for everything that's surrounding it too so it's all fine and well thinking about the actual event of eating but what about the lead up to the event of eating so I think yeah in terms of food shopping and creating more sensory sensitive or sensory aware environments I think that would definitely help food labeling definitely could help I also feel there's if we're talking about more environmental things and taking a step back from the eating behaviors I would say maybe also kind of the social element to eating I feel like um eating and going out for food that can be a very social and again that's environment of restaurants and kind of things so yeah I think that's a really good point I think it's so important to take a step back from what we might think of the outcome of the discussion like the actual behaviors and say right well what can we do with this information to make the lead up to it sensitive to sensory needs when someone experiences those sort of difficulties, is it kind of is it mostly occupational therapists or, or dietitians that would then support the person? Yes, yes. So a lot of my research, I'm kind of this is something that I I try to reflect on a lot. I think about the clinical implications in terms of the kind of eating disorder stuff, but this has much more day to day impacts, particularly in like childhood. So I would say that yeah, it would be occupational health. It would be dietitians. It would be focusing on feeding dysfunction those kind of things so yeah that would fall within the remit of of occupational health and dietitians so they're probably very well versed on these discussions i don't know is it just because of what we've seen on twitter over the past few years it seems more and more common that we are coming across people who are taking on postgraduate studies and work in the area of autism and eating disorders such as yourself yeah I would agree. I would agree. Twitter is Twitter is an amazing thing for these things. Twitter was something that I didn't appreciate the value until I started my PhD in terms of academia, but it's brilliant at networking, awareness, recruiting. Yeah, so that's brilliant. And there definitely does seem to be this sort of community um, reflected on Twitter. I think it's something, this kind of overlap between autism and eating behaviors, difficulties, disorders, you know, that kind of spectrum. I think it's something that's always been there. And I think it's something that clinically people have been observing for ages, but I think it's something research has just started to catch up to, which is unfortunate, but also makes it like a very exciting time to be working in it. I think it's also a huge bonus for the field that we have the input of 
an increasing number of autistic researchers. And if not autistic researchers, there's quite a lot of co-production going on with the autistic community. So I feel like that's creating really meaningful research questions, meaningful findings that are reflected in, you know, what the autistic community want us to research, what they want us to find, you know, we co-produce with them. Um, so I think it's definitely a field that has quite a lot of that going on in it, which makes it really interesting and yeah, really meaningful. I do say this, there's quite a lot of co-production. I think we could definitely do with a lot more autistic researchers on the other side too. I think that's definitely something we need to actively pursue a lot more, but I think that's a real bonus for the field as well. I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the social stuff and the diagnostic criteria and like the large neglect of the sensory stuff that if we like speaking to people that I conduct my research with and people that I work with particularly like autistic people with histories of eating disorders they say that these research questions and this overlap is something that if we'd been asking the right questions years ago we would have been able to do it so yeah I think it's a massively important field to work in and a really interesting field to work in so I would encourage anyone who's interested to come to come join in so looking at your research then which was published in the european eating disorders review which was a, a systematic review of sensory processing and eating behaviors in autism which we'll link to in the episode notes how did you go about, about this well a systematic review see i really liked the idea of a systematic review before i started it because it seemed very methodological you know you have quite strict guidelines and you kind of tick a box, but it is an absolute minefield. But I think you kind of just, you start off by finding your research questions or kind of finding what you're interested in and narrowing it down. And I think for me, that was really just a product of luck. I think I, my undergrad dissertation was looking at eating habits and autism. And I was always kind of simultaneously interested in the sensory stuff too. So they kind of converged. But in terms of doing a systematic review that no one had done yet it was so bizarre to me that no one had asked this question or tried to systematically review this relationship so much so that I I genuinely I think I checked the literature like twice a week for like four months just to make sure someone wasn't doing it or I hadn't missed it those kind of things I think there was a review that came out last year that looked at correlates of of feeding and eating behaviors, but didn't focus necessarily on sensory processing. So yeah, I think I just started to read more and I thought, yeah, there could really be something in this. This needs to be systematically reviewed. This needs to be addressed. This would be really interesting. So I started putting the papers together. There's loads of guidelines out there, as I said, but I won't bore you with them because they're quite, yeah, there's quite a lot of them. But basically what you do is you pull your papers together, you extract the data that you want and then a massively important part of it is quality appraisal so you need to think about the quality of the studies that you are including because it's all fine and well if you find an overall relationship between sensory processing and eating behaviors but if all the papers that you are including are of poor quality then what does that say about your conclusions so it's it's kind of not just looking for the relationship it's evaluating you know the evidence base for it I have to be honest, I did always have the implications on eating disorders at the back of my mind, just with just with my background. So I did think that that would be a really good base to kind of feed into that. But that again, that doesn't mean to say that the systematic findings wouldn't have been important for 
sensory-based feeding dysfunction, those kind of things, you know, educational interventions for meals, those kind of things. So yeah, I think what was also super interesting was that I'm also quite interested in different sensory patterns. So I wanted to kind of understand how they may intuitively feed into different, pardon the pun, like link into different eating behaviors and those kind of things because intuitively different sensory patterns will will lead to different eating behaviors so I was also that was kind of like a secondary interest in seeing whether that was the case and we actually found that only like one or two papers included different sensory patterns so that's definitely that was really interesting and but yeah I kind of thought of all these questions and wanted to ask like answer them in as methodological a way as possible Coming back to the, the previous question, I think it's fair to say most of the clinical expertise, I think, has really come from the UK and mm-hmm. probably a lot of the research where there is the, the kind of the people are looking at the link between the two issues. Do, do you recall, was there much of a, a geographic spread in, in the papers you looked at? Kind of? There was, I think most of them were done within the UK um, or America. But there was, you know, Italy, there was a few from Italy, a few from India, um, one from China. There was quite like an even spread, but I would agree that. And again, that's kind of a limitation of a lot of psychological research, this kind of very heavily westernized research conducted that does tend to dominate, unfortunately. And what about taking a lifespan approach? Why, why is that important? I'm big on a lifespan approach. Um, I feel like I'll inadvertently circle back to this loads in this discussion, but it comes up in my research quite a lot. So particularly with my autism research, a lot of that has been conducted in childhood. The most of autism research has been conducted in childhood. And I kind of understand why maybe initially that's where they started. You know, you diagnose autism in childhood, you know, intuitively you know when you're designing supporting interventions that might mean that they can be the most effective but thinking is kind of shifted away from that in the sense that we're no longer or should no longer be looking to cure in inverted commas or catch autism early you know those kind of things so being autistic is part of who an autistic person is that's that's them that's a lifespan thing that's them for life so I never really understood coming into this why there was this massive neglect of what autism would be like in adulthood and particularly for like the eating things I think it's massively important to take a lifespan approach because a huge thing that we need to think about when we're talking about this link is what the implications of these eating behaviors can be in terms of what they could develop into and again that circles back to like the eating and the feeding disorders so you know these eating behaviors in childhood and these eating disorders tend to emerge in adolescence so to not be looking at that in adolescence just doesn't really seem to make sense in what we're discussing today so I do I do actually get quite a lot of this with my research so for my last study for various research reasons I'm looking at 16 to 25 year olds which is young adults and I've had a lot of people come up to me saying like older adults saying I really want to take part in your research but I'm not eligible. You know, I'm out with the age range. I want to contribute. I want to, you know, take part in research. I want to make a difference, but I can't take part in your research. And no one's really asking me. I'm not eligible to take part in a lot of research. So 
it's definitely something that I can see within the literature and also have been have been told by the autistic community and that must be really frustrating so yeah I think for a multitude of reasons it's very important to take a lifespan approach thank you very much I'm going to hand you over to Jennifer now yeah and I mean Emmy it's absolutely fascinating to hear you kind of describe your research but also I suppose the background side of the research because like that I've been you know very present on the likes of Twitter and things like that but I see them very much from the autistic person's perspective. So it's interesting to kind of almost see the behind the curtains of actually publishing something like this um, and the importance of it. But if we could, I'd really like to ask, you know, about specific issues around mealtime behaviours, food repertoire and food neophobia. As I know personally, this is something that I would I would experience, but based on your research, what you've come across with those. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think the best way to kind of think about it is in terms of kind of the immediate issues and then more long-term issues. So yeah, th those mealtime behaviors, food repertoire and food neophobia, they were the three kind of domains of eating behaviors that I generated in my systematic review. So a kind of secondary aim of the research was to address previous limitations where a lot of terms were used interchangeably. So there was a kind of lack of clarity across papers. So you couldn't really draw too many kind of universal conclusions. So this was in line with calls for more distinct, operationalized, measurable domains of eating behaviors. So those are the three we kind of arrived at. So mealtime behaviors was more kind of autism specific. So there was a lot of criticism in kind of earlier research papers that the eating outcome measures were developed for neurotypical people and didn't really capture mealtime or eating behaviors that were specific to autism. So this could be more like selective eating, refusing foods, routines and rituals around foods, those kind of things. Food repertoire is more to do with kind of food intake. So that's total number of food groups eaten, fruit, vegetable variety. So yeah, that's food repertoire and food neophobia is the fear of trying new foods. So it's quite a broad spectrum of eating behaviors with, with a broad spectrum of issues that could come out of it. So in terms of immediately Limited food repertoire, I would say kind of nutritional deficiencies wouldn't necessarily always be the case, but they can be a, a, a consequence, an issue that would be quite immediate. GI issues, those kind of things. And mealtime behaviors, I would say in, immediately may be quite distressing for the mealtime environment, both for the individual, for the family, it might make mealtimes quite a stressful mm -hmm. experience. Longer term, and again, thinking from a developmental perspective, I'm going to sneak it in everywhere. One of the issues is what these behaviours could then develop into. And I'm not saying that this is always going to be the case. I'm not saying that the eating behaviours we're talking about in childhood or earlier in development are going to manifest as eating and feeding disorders. But for some people, for about a third of autistic people, they now estimate that is the reality that that could happen. So for example, I would say selective eating, food selectivity on the basis of taste and smell sensitivities might lead an autistic person to restrict what they're eating, which might lead to restrictive eating disorders like anorexia or like ARFID. So mm -hmm. interestingly, a very, a very recent paper that came out in the same editorial that, that my review came out in, in the, the autism special issue in the European Eating Disorders Review, it found that it provided longitudinal evidence to find that selective eating habits or fussy eating habits partially mediated the relationship between autistic traits in childhood 
and disordered eating in adolescents. So mm-hmm. what that kind of means is these eating behaviors could partially explain the development of disordered eating mm-hmm. behaviors in adolescents from, from autism in childhood. So why this could be, um, I, don't, I don't really know, but I thought that was really interesting. And what they also mm-hmm. found, which was really interesting, was that this was particularly apparent for binge eating behaviors. So like a lot of the research that I'm talking about in terms of eating disorders has focused on restrictive eating disorders like anorexia. And, you know, I can kind of understand why that's the case because I mean, people who develop anorexia, they are, they are severely ill, they are severely at risk. So kind of increasing awareness, increasing discussions, increasing research about that is massively and immediately important. But I think that almost happens at the behest of, of, we ignore other eating disorders like bulimia, like binge eating disorder. And, and they are relevant. They are prevalent in autistic people too. So I thought that was a really interesting paper and a really interesting finding. Why this might be, I'm not sure. I, I personally think, and I don't know whether I'm just because I'm biased, but I think it might be to do with these sensory patterns and these different sensory patterns that may be explaining different eating behaviors and therefore different eating disorders later in development. But um. Yeah, there's lots to think about on that front, but I would say the main, the main issue is their potential like chronicity, their persistence, and mm-hmm. like ultimately what they could develop into later in development. That's that's incredibly fascinating, and I mean, is the concept of I suppose the evolutionary nature of research over time, you know, how it changes, and you, I think we all know here, you know, if you were to read a research paper from the 80s, the language used is very different, say, to the research papers now, that'll be the case in another 30 years, things will change again, you know, as we're moving constantly, but just um, as an aside, do you notice the difference in terms of your, when you're going through research around the idea of distress, because I know we're going to talk a bit further around the emotional side of things, but um, in is it referred to in perhaps older papers as maybe fussy eating or, you know, kind of being more picky and um, picky eating is something we hear quite frequently, you know, as opposed to maybe recognizing it as distress now, which comes obviously from our societal increased knowledge about what autism is and isn't really. But I'd just be interested in if you've noticed anything there. I would, I would say so. In terms of my reading, I think the distress element was, was left out of discussions of these research questions for a very long time. I think it was this kind of focus on fussy eating behaviours as like a singular entity without necessarily what could be influencing them, what the outcomes of them could be. So I think it, it was largely left out of discussions. It is increasingly getting discussed more and more. What what's really interesting is that did make me think of something in terms of maybe people viewing fussy eaters as just being difficult and not understanding that there is this sensory element, that there is this genuine like full body response. I've been like, it's not a like or a dislike. I physically cannot eat that. And I feel again from the kind of eating disorder perspective, I think a huge like a huge treatment target target in anorexia is to introduce more and more food groups so that there's a less restrictive diet and and the patients are eating more more varied food groups but if you do that to an autistic person and you're trying to feed them food that they never would have eaten before and that you're genuinely just causing them direct distress that's so harmful So it is kind of having that consideration of the distress. And I think it's involved in like more and more discussions um, as we go. But it is, 
yeah, I would imagine, I would say it's a pretty new, new consideration. Yeah, that's that. It's just really interesting to hear, um, I suppose, as research develops and to see whether it was always a consideration and maybe it's just a language change or maybe it's, mm-hmm. I suppose, like everything, our ideology is changing um, around certain things. But um, I suppose to maybe dig a bit deeper into the link between emotional responses and sensory process, processing, based on your research, would you say there is a link? Um, and kind of how would you view that link, really, between emotional responses and sensory processing? I would say I think there is. I would say I really hope there is because it forms the backbone of the rest of my thesis. So, yeah, I'm really hoping that there is. And that's kind of what the rest of my research is looking out to explore. So it's a very complex area, but also an incredibly interesting area. At a kind of general level, you have links with kind of emotional responses to food. So that would be being upset by really intense smells or intense tastes or sounds, um, unpleasant textures, you know, those kind of things. And a lot of people I speak to, they say this is a very strong reaction. This is a full body, emotionally distressing reaction. And it's not something we should always bear in mind. I would say in the current context of eating, for example, if if you were like having a dinner party and you were having people around and one of your friends just didn't really like Brussels sprouts and you'd say, well, everyone else likes Brussels sprouts. So I'll put them out, but they just like, they just don't like them. They're just being, you know, fussy. Mm -hmm. Whereas with an autistic person, we need to increase this awareness. Like I was saying before that this isn't like a like, and it's not like a dislike. It's a genuine distressing experience so this is also um yeah and that kind of feeds back into what I was talking about in terms of anorexia and reintroducing food groups and stuff so more technically I would say there's lots of research looking at the link between emotion processing and sensory processing so particularly the interoception stuff the interpretation of bodily cues that I was talking about earlier so there's this kind of suggestion that difficulties in interoception is can affect emotion processing so that's emotion regulation, expression, identification. So, yes, so they say that if people have higher interoceptive abilities, they're better at regulating their own emotion, for for example. And this has kind of led researchers to look at the role of interoception in clinical conditions that are associated with, with differences in emotion processing, like anorexia and like autism. And what my research is is hoping to do is to look at that in autistic people with anorexia. So kind of looking at the two and looking to see whether they have common or kind of condition specific mechanisms going on in terms of the interoception. I would say that clarifying this link is tricky. Like nothing is ever linear in any kind of conversation, but particularly with this, not linear at all. So there's this kind of subclinical trait called alexithymia, which is the inability to recognize or kind of describe your own emotions. So intuitively, that's very important to our discussions and must be included when we're conducting research looking at this. What makes it even more confusing is that there is research out there that suggests that alexithymia is a subgroup. It's under the broad umbrella of interoception itself. So it kind of crosses the boundary between sensory processing and the emotion processing and it's kind of somewhere in the middle so it's it is very complex and I probably made it sound more complex than it necessarily has to be but it's just it's just kind of thinking about how there is a lot going on and to clarify this link there's a lot of different things that we need to discuss and include 
Yeah, God, it's it's actually, um, I suppose, you know, being an autistic person, you do tend to, I would immediately say, oh, of course, there's a link. But I suppose it's that emphasis of clarifying that link in research is actually very, very complex. And there's so many different sides to it. And there is an indication, I suppose, from the research that autistic people would tend to overeat or undereat. And I was just wondering on your input on that, do we know why? Do we have any indication as to why that might be or any um, outline there I would say that I would say there's a multitude of reasons really I think again it's like not a linear thing so I think there's lots of things that could be going on I would say again the sensory styles I think that's a massive thing in terms of overeating and undereating you know maybe hypersensitivity is leading to restriction hyposensitivity is leading to binging you know those kind of like overeating undereatings kind of maybe being a driving force behind it yeah I I feel that that's that's really important and is important in terms of like the eating disorder those kind of things the orphids the anorexia the binge eating disorders taking a step back from the sensory stuff I I would say it's also important to note there could be lots of lots of other reasons why autistic people over and under eat I know there was a model of a autism specific factors that were implicated in the development of restrictive eating disorders that came out um two years ago now I think and it's it's a brilliant paper um it's by Breedy and Breedy and all and so yeah that was specifically for the restrictives like anorexia and orphid those kind of restrictive eating disorders and that implicated you know social interactions emotion regulation food specific sensory sensitivities higher order sensory sensitivities routines rituals a whole shebang so that kind of I think supports what I was saying about lots of different things going on I would say that leading to kind of clinically overeating and undereating I think in young women particularly I think the combination between a possible misdiagnosis or undiagnosis of autism in childhood and the kind of lack of support at that time that they would have missed out on in combination with what it's like being a teenage girl, you know, the societal pressures, the body image, all of that stuff going on. I think that combination together from like a societal perspective could be very important in why people develop over and under eating behaviors and particularly these kind of extend to kind of a clinical clinical level but yeah I would say bottom line it's always important when we're discussing underlying factors to to include a discussion of all of them and not mm-hmm. just to necessarily go afterwards and I always say that at the start of my research study that I've just finished which was kind of a qualitative study at the beginning I would say we are we are here to talk about different factors but I'm not asking you to tell me the one factor that you think led to your eating disorder or the one factor that led to what you think maintained your eating disorder or helped you in recovery from your eating disorder. I want to hear everything that you think might be relevant to you. So this is, we are looking for lots of different factors. We're not asking you to provide one. So yeah, I think that's an important thing to include when we're, when we're answering these questions as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned there, you know, ARFID, which I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, is of course avoiding restrictive food intake disorder, which we're hearing more and more about, but Specifically, where do you see ARFID fitting into this discussion? I think ARFID should be at the forefront of this discussion, really, because it is a restrictive eating disorder like anorexia, but there's the difference between is there kind of there's no fear of weight gain. There's no kind of 
necessary body disturbances. So I think it's that kind of psychological component that distinguishes between the two. But also, in terms of a diagnostic criterion, sensory-based like food sensitivities are heavily influenced in the diagnosis of ARFID. So if anything, it feels obviously massively important, but if not kind of more immediately applicable than anorexia, because the sensory stuff doesn't necessarily factor in directly to a diagnosis, whereas ARFID, it's a huge component of it. So interestingly, though, in my study, there wasn't a single paper, a single paper that looked at ARFID as an outcome. Like not a single one looked at the relationship between sensory processing and ARFID, despite the fact that sensory processing is a massively important part in getting a diagnosis of ARFID. There's research out there that compares kind of sensory profiles between autism and ARFID. But yeah, there's lots of scope for research kind of looking at that specifically. I know ARFID is quite, it's relatively new in the, in the discussion. It's a relatively new diagnosis, but it's definitely something we need to discuss. It's definitely something we need to look at more. I would say also maybe in terms of, again, development, it was tradition, it was originally kind of posited as one that was diagnosed in childhood. Now they've kind of updated it to be that you can be diagnosed across the lifespan, but traditionally it's diagnosed in childhood and anorexia is diagnosed in, you know, adolescence. So that also kind of raises loads of interesting questions about is ARFID a precursor to anorexia? Could it be that, you know, teenage women who have, or teenage men too, but typically teenage women who are presenting with anorexia, if they're autistic, do they have a misdiagnosis of anorexia and it's ARFID? Like we don't really understand the nuances between these two because it's so new. And I think coming at it from a sensory-based aspect, like answering, asking the sensory-based questions will be massively important in untangling these kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, um, Barry touched on it earlier was the idea of talking about, I suppose, the clinical implications for this in terms of yeah. practices, you know, with whether it's the occupational therapist, speech therapist, things like that. There's different kind of, I suppose, engagement. But um, how would you see a study like this informing clinical practice, you know, for both autistic people and their families? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I feel like I've inadvertently kind of banged on about the kind of clinical implications of this quite a lot. <laughs> but I just I just think it is massively important. I think with the research that's accumulating to say there is this overlap, I think it is something we need to have at the forefront of our minds when we are looking at this, these kind of questions. So if sensory processing does underpin or at least kind of influence eating behaviors in autism, this could have, I mean, various treatment implications, really, if you're looking at the clinical interventions for eating or feeding disorders. So it would be sensory-based feeding interventions. This might be particularly relevant in children, like occupational health, those kind of things. Um, The modification of eating disorder interventions, you know, when people are presenting with eating disorders. I know a lot of good work and this is being done by the Peace Pathway down in London. So this is the first clinical pathway for autistic people with anorexia. And I think they, they're including sensory screeners, you know, treatment recommendations, including sensory modifications, sensory considerations. Like they have, they've published a lot of papers, but they also have a book and the book is really good. I keep it on my desk at like all times. So it's, it's very good. So it is encouragingly being started to, you know, incorporated. And there's discussions up in Scotland at the moment to do a very similar thing. So it's definitely gaining traction. I would say in terms of ARFID, despite it being, and this was an amazing um, 
not an amazing, a really interesting thing that I found while I was doing my reading was that despite the sensory-based element to ORFID, all the inter pretty much all the interventions that have been implemented have been cognitive or behaviorally focused. So there is a, there's a lack of sensory-based interventions that have been designed for ORFID, possibly because it's such a new diagnosis and people will hopefully start including that. But yeah, so I think intuitively it has a massive role to play in ORFID that hasn't even begun to be explored yet. So yeah, I would say those are the kind of like main clinical ones. I would also say that there's a slight caveat to this and it's probably it's probably me jumping the gun by by years but I would it would be really encouraging if we could start thinking about developing treatments for autistic people specifically so at the moment with the nature of the research we're modifying for example eating disorder interventions that are have been developed for neurotypical people and that's massively important because a lot of people who are presenting with anorexia need help and they need help now and they can't afford to wait. But what would be brilliant in future is if we could develop neurodevelop like neurodiverse interventions that are developed for autistic people, by autistic people, with autistic people, instead of this kind of modifying neurotypical interventions to you know account for autistic people. Because it would be helpful, but it might only be able to go so far. So I think that's another, and again, that's totally out with the scope of my research paper, but I think that is really important when we're thinking about clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you touch on it a few times, which is, you know, interesting is the constant kind of lack of data, the more research that needs to be done in all areas, you know, and not just in your own research, but I suppose for researchers across the board and research is yet to come up. But for you, what gaps would you identify that remain in our knowledge base? And I suppose maybe linking into that, what does your study itself recommend for future research? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And that's something that I had to reflect a lot on when I was writing up the paper, because while I did this research and while I did find that there was this significant body of evidence that supported a relationship between sensory processing and eating behaviours, a lot of those that evidence just looked at it like a straight line. And like none of the subtle nuances, none of like the other, you know, things that could be going on were accounted for. So I kind of got to my write up and I was just like, I found a lot of evidence for this, but how, how many recommendations for future research can I make without taking away from what my conclusions were? So if that makes sense. So I would say with regards to sensory processing, you know, look at different sensory patterns, look at the hypersensitivities, look at the hyposensitivities, they're the most intuitive first steps in terms of different eating outcomes and different eating behaviors. I would say, particularly with sensory, taste and smell were often conflated into one. And a big finding of my study was that taste and smell sensitivities were, were notably implicated across most, if not all, eating behaviors. So it would be interesting to see, I know they're quite intricately linked, but it would be interesting to see if we could do work that split between the two. And I think this would mean developing more kind of physiological measures of sensory processing you know neurophysiological measures measures of sensory processing another limitation was that a lot of it was self-report mostly parent report because it was all kind of children so that kind of feeds into that too and the same for eating behaviors you know that most of that was self-report we could do with more observational food diaries you know any way to get around these things that are slightly 
raise, raise less risk of, of bias, possibly. So more kind of objective measures is what I would say. Also for the sensory stuff, another important thing would be, so we kind of talk about, and I have today talked about sensory processing in terms of specific modalities. And obviously that's very important, but that's like the most external element of the sensory processing. What happens is we pick up on all these different senses and to get a full experience, to get like a unitary concept of what's, of what's happening to us when, when we are processing sensory information, all these different senses need integrated together. And this is called multi-sensory integration. And this is a massive thing in sensory processing research and in autism. And it's something that wasn't included. It wasn't acknowledged as part of these research questions. So I think that would be, that would be incredibly, incredibly interesting going forward. I'm trying to think of anything else. Other oh, development thing. But I've said that enough. But yes, obviously, <laughs> just kind of more, yeah, more research with autistic adults looking at developmental trajectories. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be massively important if we look at how these eating behaviors change or develop across, you know, development. So yeah, I think that's, that's a big one, big one too. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Amy. I mean, that was, that was incredible. I think I've been taking so many notes because I've just said so <laughs> many different things to think about because you've kind of sparked so many thoughts, but um, for yourself personally, is there anything else you'd like to add or, you know, anything you feel like you didn't touch on or? you'd want to emphasize or anything like that I don't think so no I'm sure I'll think of something afterwards I'm sure I'll think of something I've forgotten and kick myself That's always the case kick myself about it but I think yeah they were really brilliant questions and I think they gave me the opportunity to kind of discuss mm -hmm. the research and the kind of implications of it and stuff that I think is really important too so yeah at the moment I don't really have have anything to add sorry to jump in just a previous question came came to mind are there you know, are there sensory processing conferences? Are there resources or maybe things people might look up if they're kind of in the early stages of trying to, to learn about this issue? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I would imagine there might be specific sensory symposium, symposiums, I can't speak, but I'm not particularly aware of any specific ones. I would say that that's a really good question because it is a quite daunting field to get into, particularly in terms of like the autism stuff. So I would suggest if you are interested in doing that, just kind of identifying people who work in the field, you know, do lots of broad reading. I'm more than happy to, to, for anyone to email me. I think it's really important. I love having these discussions. So if anyone wants to ask any questions that's heard this and wants to know more about it, then I'm more happy more than happy for people to get in touch with me but there's only so much help that I could be in these situations so I think it would be just kind of seeing what was out there I know that's not a particularly helpful answer but it's it's quite a daunting field to get into so just seeing if there are any conferences or seeing if there are any systematic reviews that's always quite a good place to start and Twitter obviously everyone should just get on Twitter <laughs> And thank you as well for bringing up Alexa Timey because we know that's that's a, an issue both not just in autism but e and eating disorders. Yeah. And that's I amazing. but I hadn't heard the the introception part. There is one other question that came to mind based on a discussion earlier, and if we were to think of things maybe with uh, a gender perspective, so mm -hmm. on the one hand. We've got most of the eating disorder research, where there's the link with autism, 
seems to look at women's experiences, but if we look at autism research and the history of autism assessment and diagnostic tools, the critique there is they're primarily primarily based on boys and men's experiences. And of course, we know then for women, an autism diagnosis generally comes later. So is there anything maybe on the, the sensory processing side that we need to consider from a gender perspective? Mm-hmm. I'd say that's, that's a really important consideration in terms of the broader literature. I would say for sensory processing, they, they do seem to be a pretty universal difference kind of across the spectrum, across genders, across ages. It does seem to be a very like all-encompassing domain in autism that they do exhibit differences is. I would say that it's massive. It's a really complex thing in terms of the gender thing because you've got typically people saying that autism is more prevalent in men. And that's, you know, research is saying that's not the case. You know, women just present differently. So we're challenging that. Simultaneously, we've had a lot of research saying that, that eating disorders are more prevalent in women. And we have a lot of research that's now challenging that and saying that that's not necessarily true either. You know, a lot of men present with eating disorders. We're just not picking up on them because they're not presenting in the way that we have in like diagnostic criterion. So I feel like the gender assumptions on both sides that were opposing are now increasingly at both ends being called into question and being challenged. So I think having an awareness of these kind of gender disparities or these kind of, you know, even from the perspective of trying to actively recruit mixed gender balances so in terms of in in particularly in like the eating disorder and autism stuff you know trying to recruit both and and getting both kind of experiences is massively important so it's something that we definitely need to think about in terms of the sensory things as far as I'm aware there doesn't seem to be a kind of disparity between the two but at the crux of it um it's definitely like a hot topic and something that needs to be thought about very carefully Thank you very much to, to both you, Emmy and Jennifer. It's been great to, even though we're, we're meeting online, it's, <laughs> great, it's great to hear the information in, in audio form having as a follow-on from reading the paper. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been, it's been brilliant. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely to meet you both. It's been great to meet you as well and just to hear, I suppose, not just what you have done, but what you're planning and doing and kind of also the just the broader realm of research around this as well because you know I suppose both Barry and I when we're on the ground speaking to the community whether it's the eating disorder community the autistic community it's interesting to hear um, I suppose the changeability and the evolution of the research space as well it's really really important Um, so thank you so much and that brings us to the end of today's episode you can find a link to Emmy's research in the episode notes We hope to do more episodes in the future which look at the link between eating disorders and autism. Thank you for listening.